0: Hey, everybody, it's Adam Ray for the About Last Night podcast. Happy belated 4th of July. Happy birthday, America. Oh, yeah. I uh, hope you guys had a safe and happy 4th. Uh, I was in Lake Tahoe at the Improv up there. Saw some fireworks, did some shows, had a great time, went on a boat. Uh, saw a guy win $38,000 at Blackjack on Ecstasy. It was fucking amazing. Um, back in Los Angeles, getting ready for some shows. Um, I will be at the Punchline in San Francisco July 23rd through the 26th. Uh, I will also be, uh, where also will I be? I'll be at the Irvine on Improv July 15th I'll be at the Ice House July 11th and July 12th Uh, and the Comedy Store and the Laugh Factory uh, during the week check AdamRayTV.com for all the tour dates follow me on Twitter at AdamRayComedy of course pick up my album Pop-Tart Suicide on my website um And if you're going to go see Brad Williams live, check out his dates at bradwilliamscomedy.com. July 10th through the 13th, he's at the Comedy Works South in Denver, Colorado. July 17th through the 19th at Hyenas in Fort Worth, Texas. And the 24th of July through the 27th in Kansas City at the Improv. Go to bradwilliamscomedy.com to get your tickets and follow Brad at FunnyBrad on Twitter. Uh, Of course, Brad has just returned from Brazil. Uh, he made it safe and sound. I got to be honest. I really, I really fucking thought he was not going to come back. There was a piece of me that legitimately thought uh, that was going to be it. Uh, but thank God he's back. He's got stories. He even uh, grew a couple inches, I think. Uh, we'll find out whether that was uh, you know, f- from head to toe or from ball to dick. Um, <laughs> and uh, excited to get back with my buddy and do a uh, Brad and Adam podcast, which will be coming out uh, very soon. Uh, and we'll rehash the uh, last couple weeks. Uh, of all the fun we've had to share with you guys. Uh, of course, rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. It helps bump the podcast up the charts. we got a lot of great guests coming up. Jay Moore, Adam Carolla, Nick Swartzen, Melissa McCarthy, John Stamos, Theo Vaughn, Tom Arnold. Uh, really pumped about the uh, shows we got coming up. Um, and of course, uh, if you have your own show or even a business that you're trying to get off the ground, visit our friends at MyMetalBusinessCard.com. Why because they're the best in the biz at what they do, all right? They set out to do one thing. Make your life better with the highest quality business cards on the planet, and they do them with custom metal business cards. You can get stainless steel cards, copper finish cards, bottle opener cards, brass finish cards, or straight-up black metal cards. Yeah! You know where you can get it? MyMetalBusinessCard.com, motherfucker, because these players do it right, okay? They've got the best in the biz Of all the business cards, if you want a business card, stop using those flimsy, floppy, fucking paper mache, origami bullshit, All right, It's not what people use anymore. It's going to get lost in your fucking wallet. It's going to get stuck to the condom you took off that you didn't want to throw away in the girl's place. It's not the way people do business anymore. So go to MyMetalBusinessCard.com, tell them the About Last Night podcast sent you and they'll hook you up. MyMetalBusinessCard.com. That's all the information. That's what we got. And by the way, today's episode is a fucking doozy. Man, Barry Katz is the guest on the podcast. He's one of the biggest managers in Hollywood. Uh, a few of his clients he's wrapped. I don't know, Dane Cook, Dave Chappelle, Whitney Cummings, Tracy Morgan, Louis C.K., Jay Moore. The list goes on and on. Barry took time to sit down with Brad and I and have a talk about the business. He's got amazing stories from starting a comedy club in Boston to seeing Dave Chappelle for the first time at 14 to, to going on tour with Dane Cook and selling out arenas. And then he gives Brad and I a little advice uh, for the road uh, as we continue on our journey in this crazy business called Hollywood. And just a heads up this episode ends a little abruptly uh, as Barry gets into start, starting to give uh, uh, me some advice on, uh, on, on, on capitalizing more on my... Audition. Uh, for TV and movies, uh, the episode cuts off, and that is because we've got a part two with Barry uh, coming out in a few weeks. We had so much to talk about, it, literally there was not enough time, and uh, an hour and a half I felt like was a good uh, a good beginning way to wet the palate, to stroke, stroke you a little bit before you... <laughs> (laughs) come Barry Katz excitement. Jesus. Um, So we will have a part two to this episode, so just beware that it will cut off uh, when Barry asks me a question, and then I start to think about how to respond, and oh man, that's where we leave you hanging. It's a great episode. Barry's a swell dude. He's like 6'5". Everyone has an impersonation of him. Uh, He's uh, he's a class act. He's a great guy. He knows the business, and he he came by and and brought it, and you're going to love it. So Sit back, relax, and listen to this very, very special episode of the About Last Night podcast with Mr. Barry Katz. Well, the weekend's over, so it's time to chat about it. It's about
1: last night. Yeah, uh, we're here in the 28th floor in Hollywood with the most incredible view yeah. in an office I've ever seen. This is amazing. In the in the office of the great manager uh, Barry Katz.
2: All right, I yeah. made the I, yeah. made, I made the cut. <laughs>
1: Made the cut, and now you're on the world famous "About Last Night" podcast. You're fo- you're following in the footsteps of many of your clients. In fact,
2: it's fascinating. I can't believe it. Even you know, I'm. I feel like I'm. I get to you know. Chris D'elia gets to open for me. I mean, <laughs> I
0: mean it's pretty great. Yeah, Chris D'Elia, Bob Saget.
2: And it, and, it, and if for any reason you're our listener and
1: you don't know Barry Katz, first of all, he has a great podcast which we'll get which we'll get into called "Industry Standard" with Barry Katz. It gives a fascinating insight into this crazy profession that we've decided to get into but uh I- I- if you don't know barry you definitely know people that you've managed the client list is incredible uh dave chappelle jim brewer dane cook nick swartzen whitney cummings jay moore tracy morgan louis ck now these are all people that you've managed a bunch of hacks
2: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah these are these are all uh Brilliant people. Now, how so. come there's no Ted Danson, Marshall Warfield on that list? <laughs> uh, uh, Rita Rudner. Rita Rudner. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know why there's none of those. Probably because I was seven when they were starting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: Well, listen, yeah. start them young, Barry. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what, t- what uh, took you so long.
2: Uh, there used to be a joke, because I always used to represent... Uh, a lot of people don't know this about me, but... I started as a stand-up comedian right. uh, in Boston. Uh, you started, is that when you started the club? The, I started, well, I started doing comedy. Do you want to hear this story? Yeah, is it a yeah, yeah um, absolutely.
0: By the way, Barry is known for Do You Want to Hear This Story? <laughs> and then telling 90-minute stories. that are great. They have like punchlines and have beginnings and middles and endings. There's like stories inside of stories. It's like inception in Barry Talks. But it's a great dream. My son
1: my son had oatmeal this morning. (laughs) Do you want to hear the story? It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're like, no, I don't want to hear about your son but having somehow. oatmeal. But somehow that story yeah. gets
0: into how Nick Swartzon booked his first stand-up <laughs> <story>. <laughs> Right, exactly.
2: That's crazy. Yeah. You're just, I, I never heard you do an impression of me. That, yeah. Oh, you haven't heard, you, you, you haven't heard the Bran Williamsberry pants? It's,
1: pre- it's pretty good. Yeah. It's, pre- it's pretty good. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not my Shakira impression. Yeah, yeah. Which is legendary. Yeah, yeah. The uh, no. little... <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> (laughs) I mean, hell, that, I mean, yeah. Do you
0: find it flattering that people have
1: impressions of you?
0: Because, like, there's a few comic buddies who, in the last week, have done impressions of me to me, and they're terrible. And I don't get offended. I just am like, I want to be, like, but make it good because they go, hey, I'm Adam Ray. And I'm like, all right, my mom does that. Like, that's, so, like, that's not anything new to me. But, like, when people first start impersonating you, I feel like that's... A flatter. Like, people impersonate Dean Del Rey, but that's because he's got that cartoony voice. Like, oh, Barry, dude, you were on therapy Talk. And, dude, I didn't give you the light because you're a legend. So it's like, everyone, ha- that's a great voice. As he to- gives you a flyer to his next show. Oh, come on, I'll be a terrifying improv tonight. <laughs> Actually, it already happened. But here's the DVD. I'll uh, retweet you. Yeah. But, like, Dean has a great voice worth uh, impersonating. And I think that's why it gets done. Also, because he's a character in himself. Sure. But with your voice, and we'll get to the story that you're going to tell but do you enjoy hearing all the cats impressions
2: <laughs> I do I mean I, yeah. I've always loved the art of roasting and yeah. people shitting on people and people have imitated my voice since I was a little kid and I mm-hmm. just oh no, for real yeah and it sounded like this when I was a little kid too <laughs> just as so you, so you, so you were like a th- in third grade going
1: Listen, man, if you represent our team on the kickball field, give me 10% of your juice boxes. I'll just need 10%. You get to call me coach. I get
2: a coach credit at the end of the season, but I'll put this team together, man. That is an actual recording of me on the kickball field, yes.
0: Do um, the East... Okay, so tell the story. <laughs> I was going to ask the east the shitting on people on the East Coast thing, I've always heard is a very New York, boston thing amongst comics, right, uh,
2: well, it's weird. Like, when I was growing up, and I will tell that other story, yeah. mm-hmm. I had, like, uh Jesus,
0: <laughs> just trying to put some music to this story.
2: Incredible, the way you're... Is that music that you wrote, or...? I don't know what's happening. Okay, there we go. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's the edit point. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I I had like really I sucked my thumb until I was like thirteen. I had like well, you were doing it when we walked in here, so I was gonna say, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know if you truly got over yeah, it. I don't think that's it. I habit. had like not that I don't have huge teeth now. As Jay Moore says, I could eat an apple through a white picket fence with the one my teeth. Are. <laughs> but I had huge buck teeth. Wow. I wore braces for six years, wow. and all through school, I was like, you know, I you don't really make friends when you have teeth. The size of Mister Ed, you know what I'm saying? Wait, with what, braces around? What him. do they call you? Because I was a fat kid, and I got some pretty inc-
0: nicknames that I look back on. That I'm like, that's like incredible that you would think of that as a kid. Because usually it's,
2: you're like, I'm sure you got, hey, big teeth, or, <laughs> or I I didn't, else? I didn't get shit on as much because I had two friends that were really, really. I don't know why they befriended me, but I had two guys who were like the most popular guys. But they loved hanging out with me because I was funny and I was always entertaining, yes. and, and they would love having me around. So I I spared the wrath of, but I, I you know later on I didn't you know I didn't go to my prom, I didn't get any the action. I wasn't one of those guys who was like making it happen like Brad Williams. I mean my God, <laughs> this guy I've never seen any. If I could just have like a fraction. Of the women that this guy has, <laughs> it's just insanity. Yeah. I've never. You'd guess. have a full eight women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are yeah. you wait, you're saying
1: if you want a fraction of the dwarf women he gets, or of the real? I the think normal. he does. Yeah. Uh, we, I, I've had various meetings with Barry. He's like, Bran, how does it work? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta know, man. Who's on top of who? Who's on top of who? Does it? Does it? Does everything line up accordingly? I just think
2: to myself <laughs> when I'm naked and I look in the mirror of the shower, and I look at what's there in the yeah. area in the central area yeah mm-hmm. there are times when i think to myself this would look monstrous on brad williams <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was waiting to hear another dwarf man but i didn't know you were emphasizing <laughs> no. about bradley like you know, well I, I you know what and that's that's the kind of manager you are even <laughs> yeah. even when you're naked you are still thinking about your clients <laughs> i'm incredible. liking that i'm i'm that's loving incredible. that about you barry yeah yeah um <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is going
2: nowhere fast. this is great no this is a, hey, mm-hmm. this
1: is this is our this is how we do it um <laughs> all right so um you're, you're 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 starting comedy in uh in 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 Boston. Yeah, you started. Yeah, so I'm sorry. So I yeah. started
2: doing stand up. I what happened was is that my father passed away when I was 4. And I expl- I explored in my basement. I pried open a file cabinet, and I grew up in an all white area, Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which is an Indian word. It means uh, Jews live here. And I had this all these albums, and that they were all true to me. Yeah, I don't know if that was a joke or not. <laughs> well, that's for you yeah. to decide. <laughs> and there were all these black albums of like Dinah Washington and uh, Louis Armstrong and Nat King Cole and the Supremes and. And Shirley Bassey. And there were three albums in there that were from white artists. And they were all comedy records. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Winters' Comedy and Tragedy. Genius. Uh, the Smothers Brothers right there. Oh, there you go. It was, was Crabs Walk Sideways and Lobsters Walk Straight. And there was the Button Down Mind of Bob Newhart. Oh, wow. And later on in my career, for those in your audience who don't know this... Bob Newhart was a guy who did, you know, bits on television, Bob Hope specials, things Bob like Newhart that. Bob Newhart's show was legendary. Like, and Bob, Hope, yeah. Hope, and Bob Newhart's special, uh, and also the show later was legendary. But early on, Warner Brothers called him and they said, "Hey, we want you to do a comedy record." Mm-hmm. And in his stutter step way, he said, um, I, "I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm I'm not a comic. I just do sketches and things." They said. It doesn't matter. We Just send a recording crew wherever you want to do it, record it, do an album. That was Warner Brothers Records' first stand-up record. Okay. And in 1959, it was Warner Brothers Records' first gold record, was a comedy record. Holy wow. Shit. <laughs> nice little and bit so of that, trivia. So I memorized all these bits from there. I, I, I memorized a here. famous mm-hmm. routine from there. Uh, called The Driving Instructor, and for those of you who, who are in comedy, and I recommend very few things, but, but back then, when you listened to comedy, you know, like you go to a show right now, like if Brad or Adam were to do a show, and you were to see them get the kind of response that, let's say, like Bob Newhart got, or, or Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks doing The 2,000-Year-Old Man, mm-hmm. you would think they were bombing. Hmm. Because back then people were doing humor where people they it, it, they watched comedy like sort of you watch a television show and you're just going enjoy it <laughs> yeah yeah that's nice that's good wow and so and so Bob how do, would they gauge if they were I mean you great did, or not you I didn't, guess well in the Borscht Belt Hackett used to tell me uh, Buddy Hackett by the way who mm-hmm. was a very good friend of mine and he was an actor on the first show I ever executive produced action. And I got to know him very, very well. I'm digressing with the stories, Mm -hmm. but just to tell you, you know, one of the things you learn in your life is, is how much you might have meant to somebody when you don't really understand it. And, uh, and as you get older and you lose people in your life, you find the answers to these things. And when Buddy Hackett passed away, I got the call from his wife and she said, will you come over? And I came over to the house and I go into the house and it's me and his wife. And no there's nobody else there. And I'm thinking, holy shit. And then the doorbell rings and she said, Will you get that for me? I open the door. It's Jeffrey Ross. Mm-hmm. And then about an hour later, the doorbell rings a final time. And I open the door and it's Jay Moore. <laughs> and it was the three of us wow. with Sherry Hackett talking until three o'clock in the morning. And then one of her children came mm-hmm. and the night he died. And so he meant a lot to me. And to digress, I'm sorry. But in Vegas, he was making $175,000 a week in 1951. That's and, pretty solid. And back then, yeah. Buddy Hackett in the live shows, would kill. I mean, he'd just kill. He was in another level. He did the first two HBO specials. But the kind of comedy that Bob Newhart did was very cerebral, and he did the kind of comedy, for those of you who are comedy aficionados, the only thing that compares to it is one bit that Ellen did on The Tonight Show about 20 years ago called Conversations with God. Yeah. I strongly suggest you I go on YouTube bit, yeah. and it's and amazing. look it up. It's an amazing bit. And Bob Newhart did this kind of humor where he painted a picture, sort of like Vin Scully for the Dodgers and Major League Baseball, paints a picture for those of you on radio where he tells you and he does the dialogue of everything that's ha- that's happening. And I actually... If I, I hope I can remember the first 30 seconds of this piece because I memorized and I performed it for a talent show, and I'll show you the kind of humor it was because it wasn't gut-busting humor, mm-hmm. but how he did it. And he would do it like this. He would say, um, there's a group of men who go to work every day, and they don't know if they're going to come home at night. And I'm, I'm talking about America's uh, driving instructors. Uh, so picture a car... Mm-hmm. I'm the driving instructor, and seated next to me is a woman driver. Now, back then, a woman driver was the equivalent to what I guess we'd shit on somebody who was an older Chinese driver or right. something sure, like here, that. Yeah. And then he would start, and he would say, "Okay, uh, <clears throat> let me uh, sit down here. Your name is Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Mrs. Webb. Is that correct? Yeah." Uh, just let me read uh, down uh, here and familiarize myself with the case. Your, your instructor was Mr. Adams, is that correct? Yeah. Um, how, how fast were you going when Mr. Adams jumped from the car? <laughs> oh, s- s- 75. Mm-hmm. And where was that, Mrs. Webb? in your driveway. <laughs> and that was like how it went. That's how he did the bit. And he yeah, would do right. a seven minute bit like that. But the laughs would be kind of like you are laughing. Nothing like you know, you watch Def Jam, people right. are jumping out of their seats, high fiving, doing a backflip into a tongue stand. Right. And, and you know, that's just when they see Cat Williams suit. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So
0: Is that I, because you think there's so much there's so much milking of the the timing and the pauses that like people really don't want to miss anything so they're so concerned with Not concerned with laughing, but like listening, so that they don't miss the next thing that's coming. Because there's a lot of misdirection in a bit like
2: that, right? So, so I think so. I just he just had a different style. He was the closest thing, you know. If Stephen Wright doesn't get huge gut busting laughs, but he takes the time and he brings you on a journey where you really have to think. And I definitely want to. I hope we get back to this because I want to talk about. Uh, the state of comedy in general and the kind of comedians oh, yeah. that are out there. Because I think Absolutely. it's really important. As uh, but, Jay Moore says, we will, we will put a pin in that. Yes. And come back to it. And so I, 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 I figured out the routine. I memorized it. I did it at a high school talent show. And then um, I started doing it at open mic nights in, in Boston. And the first open mic night I went to, actually, it was a fluke, uh, sort of, because there was a blizzard in Boston in 1978 where the whole town was shut down. And I'm in the middle of Kenmore Square, and if you've ever been to Boston, Kenmore Square is like the center where three major streets come off of it: Commonwealth Avenue to the right, the center is Beacon Street, which went off to Simmons College and Emmanuel, and and then to the left Brookline Avenue, where Fenway Park was. Right. And if I actually standing in the middle, it's like midnight blizzard. You know, there's. What do you
0: do when there's a blizzard? By the way, I've never been. I've been in Seattle snow, but nothing to where. Like, everything is... It
2: was just an emergency where no cars were allowed on the road, and you stood there, and you could look up three roads, and there was nothing. And I'm looking, and it was one of the most surreal moments, and then something happened that was unbelievable. I heard laughter. Hmm. And this was a defining moment. It was so
0: quiet when you heard that, right? Yeah, and it was a
2: defining moment in my life because I looked to my left, and there was an old brownstone pub, and ironically, the name of the pub, Crossroads. And I walked up the stairs, and there was a a young man on stage who looked like a young Larry from the Three Stooges. And he had a foot on a stool, and he was strumming a guitar, and there was about 30 people there. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget this. He said, Rachel, my dear, wish you were here. How I missed her. And he's strumming the guitar, and he says, having sex with Rachel was amazing. (laughs) It was like a concert. Frisbees would be flying around the <laughs> room. Beach balls would be hitting me in the head. And every time she wanted more, she'd light a match. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. And he mm-hmm. just walked down the stairs and into the night it and disappeared. No, it disappeared. Yeah, and that, that yeah. was the first Camille I ever saw. That was Stephen Wright. I was just gonna say that, that was, was Stephen Wright. Yes. Wow. wow. And so I, I thought maybe there was
0: no man even there and that was the first time he did PCP. And he just <laughs> kind of hallucinated the whole thing. But that no, was so that was No, un-
2: I've never believe it or not, I've never really been a big drug user. The 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 only time I was really majorly affected by drugs was when I did a development deal with Dave Chappelle and he said, "Come on, man, you got to celebrate." <laughs> and i had to leave for the airport that night and gather some stuff of jay morris because we were staying in the same place at the academy village apartments in magnolia somewhere in north hollywood and i said dave i don't smoke i'm sorry barry you gotta smoke we didn't steal (laughs) come on man (laughs) and so i smoked this uh, apparently some kind of Dr. Dre chronic stuff. And I'm like, Dave... Which, not-
1: which, which, by the way, how every black person figures white people describe weed is, I had some Dr. Dre chronic stuff. It was the... It- I, I I believe Snoop calls it the shizzle. The shizzle. I was Snoopy getting high. Pebbles. I was
2: getting high with Donald Sterling. No. story. So yeah. so I'm doing. So I say, Dave, nothing affects me. I can't. I'm too big. Yeah. Nothing's gonna affect me. Mm-hmm. And I finish the joint with him. And I he's like hi. He's like, Dave was the kind of guy. Literally, just uh to to sidestep here for a second yes Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know this you know i work with Dave from when he was eighteen to twenty six and he was the kind of and i hope i think i can say this because it's common knowledge i don't know what he does now but back then like he was a guy who was like he would literally wake up at the crack of noon smoke a bag of weed a day Mm -hmm. and you'd meet up with him and you wouldn't even be sure that he could function or what he'd be doing and if we had a Letterman appearance or a Conan appearance, I'd be thinking, God, what's going to happen here? And the red light went on, and he was like magic. He was like a genius. I mean, it was unbelievable. The guy, Dave Chappelle, never fucking failed. It was unbelievable. He was like a brain surgeon. There wasn't one time where he ever failed that I know of when I was working with him. Working, He did like 40... National television appearances in, like, you know, the first two years. What do you think it is about Dave as a performer, or what, what makes him so special that
0: he was able to um, have something like that also uh, going on with him and be able just to turn on and be, as you say, undeniable every time and not uh, give a, a, an ounce of doubt to anyone watching that he isn't going to be incredible?
2: I don't, you know, I am I, embarrassed to say that I don't know the answer to that, only that I know that there's. There's Very people few. who come around once every yep. 20 or 25 years, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about, yeah. I promise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> later. So it's all uh, bullet-pointed in my head. We're yeah. going to get through this. So I promise. I'm going to go back to the story, though. So I sure. sign up for the open mic night. Stephen Wright walks, walks yeah, out walks and out. inspires you to just go. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. sign up for the open mic night there. I go back on the Monday. I've gotten back from the swimming championships. I've shaved my head. You know, I'm like, i have like, as Steve Middleman says, I look like a giant thumb. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm, but I'm cut up I'm like I got you know sure. I, I look a little different than I, than I do now um, um, yeah, well, yeah, I, yeah but this is the body you get to picture Brad Williams in front of yeah that's right that's yeah. what I do I look in the mirror and I say like naked I look like a bag of onions but I'm thinking of Brad Williams <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah yeah so I sign up so I go to the thing and I'm, I go and I'm uh, I'm I'm in real you know swimmers are in great shape yeah, yeah phenomenal and shade. there's this guy hosting his name's Ross Bickford he was called the taxi driver this huge six foot seven guy and he's doing old jokes and things like that and he goes to bring me up and he does that thing like every comic has always experienced this like uh, this next guy <clears throat> i don't know if he's funny or not but he's yeah. hung like a buffalo please welcome barry cats and i'm like and you're and you're going up there for the first time and you're like oh my god i gotta say something like i was with him last night or something right i made some joke and then i went into the bob newhart routine did the routine said i'd like to do a bob newhart routine and i did it and it fucking killed and it killed harder than the <clears throat> than the album and mm-hmm. i was like holy shit this is amazing i feel great and as you do when you're a comedian, when you do well, it fills the hole and it's wonderful until about an hour later, like Chinese food and you got to get something else, yep. some other kind of fix. And I'm walking out and the guy like runs after me, he says, cats, cats. I'm like, yeah, what's up, man? He said, listen, I got some advice for you. You're great. You had the best set of the night. I said, thank you so much. What's the advice? He said, listen, when you're doing somebody else's routine. Don't mention their name, just take the fucking bit. Oh my god. <laughs> and that's when I knew I had to start writing my own material. Well, you had no idea at that point that that was like something to not do, huh? No, I had no well, idea.
1: Well, cuz no one does when they really get into the business. Yeah. I mean, they 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 just start there there's a million stories like that of guys of guys going up and doing jokes that they thought because they think, "Oh, it's a joke." Like when your friend tells you a joke on on the playground or in the office, you go, "Oh, I can't wait to tell that joke to somebody else." Yeah. So then like and you don't know the rules until someone Punches you in the face and say, What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, t- 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 telling my joke like that. No, it's true. So, what was so those, um,
0: like the way you say, like the new heart, new heart routine was something that you would like memorize. And like, were there other things that you maybe didn't perform that were like for me? I would make people laugh when I was like in the fifth and sixth grade by memorizing, uh, Ace Ventura or anything Jim Carrey and would do it on the back of the bus to all my friends. So, like,
2: it seems like new heart was that for you, but then you took it. But were there other things that you did no because I wasn't I I was just goofy and funny with people and it was just all improvisational I never knew any bits or imitated anybody it was a it was a different time so then, after and the
0: Newhart bit, then you are like, "All right, I got to start writing." Then I
2: start writing. I write my own act, and then I do an open mic night. I sign up for one on a Wednesday night in Inman Square, Cambridge, at a place called the Ding Ho, which was a Chinese restaurant yeah. uh, slash was in comedy a, club. That was in the that was featured in the documentary when Stand Up Stood Out. That's right, the old the old Ding the, Ho, the old documentary. I didn't do that documentary. I regret that the day I die, I should have done that documentary. A great doc on the I Boston comedy that Wait, that's a, not the comedy studio, is it? No, it was no. Fran Salamita and his partner, I believe, who did it. It was amazing. Uh-huh. And so um, I actually own the sign to the Ding Ho that oh, I nice. left in my building in Boston. I wonder if it's still there. <laughs> um, so then I go there. Lenny Clark is hosting. For those of you who don't know Lenny Clark, he's an iconic Boston comedian. He uh, was on He was on and, was on Rescue, me. and Rescue Me yeah. and tons of stuff. He's a... a, a an amazing natural legend in boston uh... marty olson used to play piano who has created a bunch of uh... children's shows and he's just amazing and you had great comedians like local comedians like don gavin and dj hazard and uh... steve sweeney steve sweeney was a guy to let you know how powerful the boston comedy scene was and i don't care where you are in the country or the world listening this it's never happened anywhere. This guy would sell out three shows, mm-hmm. 400 people each show on a Friday, 8, 10, and midnight every week. This is why these guys wow. in Boston were amazing, but a lot of them didn't leave town because they were making so much money. Right, yeah. and, and It was crazy. And this was in the early 80s? Yeah, it was in the 80s. And so yeah. I, so I went to this open mic night. I do my original comedy. And I fucking kill again with my original comedy. I walk out. The same thing happens. Lenny Clark runs after me. And I'm this is crazy. I'm getting scared. He said, again, it's not my first name. It's Katsy. Mm-hmm. Katsy. I'm like, what's up, Lenny? Uh, thanks for putting me on. He's like, listen, where did you come from? I said, well, I go to Boston University. I just want to try it out. He said, listen, I want you to come back next week. I want you to open the show, and I want you to do the same thing. And I didn't know anything about comedy, and I looked at him and I said, Listen, Lenny, I, 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 uh, I can't write five new minutes by next week. I'm sorry, I can't do it. And he paused and he looked at me, as they say, comedians say sometimes, he looked at me like the dog looks at the answering machine. Right, right. Yeah. And this is what he says to me, and this is when I knew, you know, I was in a new and different, harsher world. He looks at me and he says, You dumb Jew bastard. <laughs> You stupid fucking kite. You motherfucking Jew. You come back here next week, you do the same act, don't worry about it. I said okay. Thank, thank, thank you.
1: <laughs> and you thank someone too. <laughs> the,
2: geez, uh, such thank you for calling me, <laughs> a, a hebe, Kike Bastard. And so, so I come back the next. Which exactly is your email, right? E O L yeah, right. <laughs> hebe, kike Jew Bastard at <laughs> Yahoo.
1: Or I think you're still a, a <laughs> Hotmail guy, right? Yeah. Know. All all those young I comics know. out there, send send Barry an email this week.
2: Yeah. Oh Jesus. <laughs> um, and so I go back and I look around <laughs> this Chinese restaurant slash comedy club. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the same neighborhood people. And I go up to Marty Olsen and Lenny. I'm like, listen, guys, I it seems like the same people. <laughs> oh, don't worry about it, Barry. It's okay. Right. So I go up. I do the same thing I did last week crickets. Oh, <laughs> Nothing. Like, yep. complete bomb. How do they
0: make you feel after oh. seeing the alternative?
2: I just felt awful, and I just felt, I, I i literally didn't do comedy again for like six months. Wow. I was so depressed about it, and then somebody asked me to open up for Franken and Davis at Boston University, and I decided to do it, and I think I got a standing ovation doing that, and they said, okay, maybe I should... Continue doing, it. but I I realized about comedy why I didn't want to do it anymore so much as I I liked being I, I didn't feel like I was in control I felt other people were in control and it was mm-hmm. a different time yeah because now I think comedians are more in control and, and sure between all the then, avenues that they have
1: yeah. via podcasts or YouTube videos or yeah. uh, the content that they put out themselves yeah they are they they already control of their own material but back in that back in that time it was just you you're, you're trying to get. On the Tonight Show, you're you're trying to get someone to discover you. You're trying to get someone like you're 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 waiting for a gatekeeper to yeah, come I to mean, you and say you're famous now.
2: The goal, I mean, as a comic back then was just uh, if you could do if you could do the Tonight Show, it would be the you know I interviewed Henry Bushkin, who was the manager lawyer for uh, Carson, and you know that was the whole that was the whole thing. It's just you just wanted to do that, but it's a different time now. The goals of of comedians have have changed, and I think. Sure. Now I somebody
0: just wants to get featured on a BuzzFeed, some bullshit like the top ten comics to watch in the northeast part of Orange County. Like somebody <laughs> just wants that type of accolade to go. All right, I'm do. Like the the, mm-hmm. uh, the opportunities for uh, many validations, I
2: think, are much greater. Well, I think that's true. And like, and I I loved, and so I started running comedy clubs because mm-hmm. I love that world. And I had like God knows fifty different you know one nighters and and comedy clubs in New England. doing really well and then i moved to uh new york and opened the comedy club in Greenwich village uh where um uh right around the corner from the comedy cellar called the boston comedy club which was there for like 20 years until i moved out here and who came through that boston comedy club oh my god this this is the this the thing like i always i always loved young comics who weren't given a shot and people like Chappelle and Jay Moore and uh, Brewer and Daryl Hammond and, uh, you know, all these people. Who, and you would find them or they would just hear about the club and then you'd... I would find them because I was out in the clubs all the time. And uh, something Neil Brennan said to me, which is fascinating, he said that in his entire career, there isn't anything in his career that's say, happened... That hasn't happened from him hanging around the comedy yep. club. We are just talking sure. about
0: that on the way over here. I he yeah. actually brought when he did our uh, podcast. I brought brought that up because uh, I I loved him making that point on uh, on the industry standard with Barry Katz. Uh, but that available <laughs> uh, on iTunes. <laughs> but uh, it's so true, and I think that is. Um, I mean, that happened for Neil at like what ten or so years ago when he started, and I feel like that's still just as. Well, yeah, it, you know. it,
1: it, it, it's something that uh, I like to tell comics is when they're when when they're getting started up in Hollywood, just be around the scene, hang out, see see what it is, see what the experts are doing, and just have people start associating you with being a comedian. Like yeah. if, if you're seen in a comedy club, they go, "Oh yeah, that guy he's all he, he's always here. He must be a comic." Yeah.
2: And I don't, you know. And what's weird is I I didn't always take that tack that Neil said because I always felt comedy clubs and i still feel this way and and but it's just how you navigate around it Mm -hmm. comedy clubs are cancer i mean everything (laughs) about it is cancerous because every single person at that comedy club this is the thing that it's the unspoken thing is that if you're a comic and you're walking to a comedy club and you're doing a set no one wants you to do well. No one <laughs> wants you to do better than them. Mm-hmm. They all want you to fail before they do so they can get there first. They're all going to walk up to you and say, hey, uh, did you go on this audition for, uh, you know, the Tidy Bowl guy? <laughs> uh, no, no, I didn't. Oh, man, it was a great audition. Big money, too. Should have <laughs> gone out Should have gone yeah, out yeah. For yeah. That. yeah. You know, you should be so famous by now. It's unbelievable. What's uh, what's uh what's 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 up with that? What are you doing?
0: Oh, by the way, is that your drink? It is. You had one earlier, didn't you too? Yeah, so you're drinking a lot. That's good.
2: Yeah. And people and these comedians, they're like uh, as Whitney Cummings would say, they're emotional ninjas. <laughs> they know how to fucking get to you. And so I used to always tell comedians which apparently I'm I'm wrong about because Neil says you should always hang out. You should hang out if you have mental toughness. But That's if you don't true. have mental toughness, get in and get the fuck out. Yeah, I agree with that or because it, it, because it, it, it'll it'll just crush you like a bug these these rooms and yeah. where these people yeah, are. Yeah, and you
0: need to have your wits about you for the road that is about to uh, uh you're about to travel on that is the comedy world because I feel like um as uh as you're saying like it just it is crushing. I think even I don't know if it ever gets to a point to where it can't be crushing. I mean even for the guys who are still
2: doing theaters i mean there's got to be an element of just loneliness that still seeps in or i can assure you because i have been in and i don't i don't think it's wrong of me to tell this story i uh i worked with dane cook for 17 years yep. okay so and we're looking at the uh, i mean every album of his that's gone platinum double plat i mean yeah, yeah it was an it was an amazing amazing run and uh and you know a lot of people have a lot of like you know, the trouble is, is like when you make it, you become polarizing and people will try to take you down. Sure. It doesn't make any difference who you are. I can guarantee you Louis C.K. has more enemies now than he ever had in his life, well, even though everybody thinks he's the most popular guy in the world right now. And he is. Yeah. and You just gain people who, who want to figure out a way to like say something or do something or whatever. It, 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 it's a weird thing that people somehow get in their heads
1: that if they take down the top guy, if they insult him and take him down, that magically they'll be put into that spot. That's yeah, not the case. It's like, not the case. It, 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 if Louis C.K. stopped doing comedy tomorrow, you're not going to be the guy that's just automatically put up there and is given an HBO special every year. You have to have the talent to back it up. you got to no, true. in that work
2: ethic. So you got Dane before he uh, – you got him when he was – Oh, when he was just a young, young kid before he did anything. Before he just let him his half hour. Oh, before anything. When he was wearing tank tops. <laughs> that was a, that was a, uh, a very, very um, pinpointed decision to wear the tank top. Yeah, that, really. And that show, that was an interesting show. That was the first half hour special. And I right. made an agreement with Comedy Central that he would be allowed to do an hour. Just okay. so I would have the hour to have to know that I had it. How and- do you think to pull
0: something like that? I mean, and that's obviously I've heard you make a lot of um, maneuvers like that. Which you have, have heard that, yeah. Which have yeah. which I mean, but shit, I who there- doesn't want somebody in their corner that is thinking outside the box like that and is willing to make those types of
1: yeah, arrangements? There's, yeah, there's that story, uh, and and maybe maybe we could tell it briefly when. Uh, they, they didn't let you in the Montreal Comedy Festival, and then you set up, like, your own Montreal Comedy Festival, and, like, got all these comics development deals because what? of it? What? Yeah. What, what, I mean, I mean uh, what's that story, briefly? Like, what happened? Briefly?
2: How do you even say that word in this office right now? Uh, yeah, true. True. But, like, yeah. That was an interesting time. What happened was is I'd, I'd gotten a lot of people into the festival. I had a great relationship with the guys at the festival. Mm-hmm. And then this one year, whatever it was, 93 or 94 or 95, I, I think it was 94 or 95, I, uh, they didn't pick anybody I represented to go in. And I, that was unacceptable to me. I mean, I I couldn't understand the possibility how they couldn't choose one person that I worked with. I brought them so many great people.
1: Yeah, yeah. and the Montreal Comedy Festival, for those who don't know, most prestigious festival most prestigious comedy festival around people there's tons of industry there people get deals there people get discovered there big things big things happen there so to to be shut out as a manager it's just you're you start panicking
2: and and so i mean i never one of the things i should share with you guys and i don't know and i think this is something for anybody in any profession i don't think you can panic i don't Mm -hmm. think you can ever panic in terms of anything you always have to you know, handle things in a way where you believe in your heart you can come up with a solution calmly and effectively because you're never going to do well. As I say, you know, you don't see Tom Brady in the huddle. Uh, Okay, guys, I'm a little anxious about this. I know there's two minutes left. Maybe... I don't know, maybe we'll win this, maybe we won't. Mm -hmm. It's like, you you know, you just got to go. You just got to go and make it happen. So what I figured is that I... You see Peyton Manning doing that, though, by the way. Go Seahawks. Go Seahawks. Shut your (laughs) damn mouth.
1: DeMarcus is (laughs) going to end your life.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, but, you know, the Peyton Manning, I'm glad you mentioned Peyton Manning. This is what's great about comedy, and this is what everybody should know. Things, you know, rules are broken you have a guy who's 15 years more experienced than one guy mm-hmm. who gets the shit kicked out of him, and this young guy who's never been there before makes it happen. That's the metaphor for our business. If you want to make it, if you want to do anything, if you're testing for a show, everybody's got to direct the movie first the first time. Everybody's got to do their hour the first time. Everybody's got to book a television show your first time, and you've got to beat people who've been doing it multiple times right and that's the way it is. so with montreal what happened was is that i called around to different comedy clubs the comedy nest i'm sorry the comedy works jimbo and asked him if i could have uh friday saturday and sunday during the festival myself <laughs> he said no called a few other places and i called the late ernie butler who had the comedy works And he agreed, without even knowing me, I sold him on the fact that I'm going to bring all these comedians down, and I'm going to have uh, six different comedians on Friday, six different comedians on Saturday, six different comedians on Sunday. Now, back Mm -hmm. then, no email. So then I did a plan where I put two ads in the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, which were big at the time, which aren't as necessarily big right now, $3,000 each. I didn't even have any money. I was just doing it. I put it together. And then I made, I talked to every comedian and enrolled them that I knew into flying themselves out there, putting themselves up and, uh, with and, the guarantee that they with would the be. guarantee that I would get, I would get industry in to see them before I even knew that I could. <laughs> and so what I did was every day, you just knew you'd find a way. Yeah. So every day for a month out, I would spend from like midnight to 3am faxing mm-hmm. people in the industry this invitation to get rsvps so we get out there 225 industry people show up through the three days to watch people like chappelle jim brewer wanda sykes tracy morgan daryl hammond all clients of yours and all clients all all unknown at at the time All unknown at the time, yeah. The and fuck? I got five okay. development deals, and no one else in Montreal got a development deal that year. And uh, <laughs> what? And the people from the powers of being Montreal <laughs> flew to L.A. and they had a talk with me, and I, I never, uh, I never did another one of those <laughs> again. But uh, that's incredible. I mean, yeah. Is that a
0: no- that's a pretty known thing that's happened. I, mean, I don't know how knowing it is.
1: Well, I mean, but it, it 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 just shows the type of guy you are and as and and Adam said earlier, like you're a guy that now as a manager uh not only do you have an impression of you, but you have a catchphrase. Like you like you tell people, be undeniable man. <laughs> and that and that's a scenario where you were denied and you said, Fuck that, I have to find a way to succeed, and you busted your ass to get those clients in because you believed in them. And also, they believed in you because you told them, like you said, you've got to fly yourself out. You've got to put yourself up in a hotel on this gamble. But as you've told me in this office during our meetings, Barry Cats, you look at me and you say, "Brand, safest investment you'll ever make is when you invest in yourself. and You have to. Yeah, and, and, and you, ha- you have to trust that you're going to be the one to do the work and have the talent uh, to overcome those sorts of obstacles and that's the confidence that you instill in my clients. I tell Adam all the time, every time I come out of this office, I feel like I'm going to break down a wall. I, I feel like I'm, I'm fired up.
2: Well, that's good. I like to see that a wall. <laughs>
1: yeah. I it's mean, very, it's more of a doggy door. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah.
2: You know, I but, mean, uh, it's got a night, flap everybody. on it. Good night, everybody.
0: I'll be at Flappers in Burbank <laughs> tonight through Sunday in <laughs> the Jimmy John's Chuckle Hut. Not <laughs> Who <to> be, names <laughs> a club Flappers? Well, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking that's about. a whole yeah, yeah, yeah. other
2: podcast. But wait, so that type of gusto you had
0: for Dane, though, with the uh, tank top.
2: I mean, those types of decisions. Yeah, like you, I always thought outside the box of how you do things. Like, for instance, like one of the specials that he did, Isolated Incident. uh, Shot at the Laugh Factory. Yeah, shot at the Laugh Factory. And the concept was, which, you know, if you can do it, you always want to figure out a way to do something that's never been done before, something that's in a unique way. You can't change what something is or, like, one of the things I always say which probably might get me in trouble is, like, like 30 Rock, one of my favorite shows ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay? But if you are a historian of television, you can understand that that's the Mary Tyler Moore show. <laughs> I mean, Tina is Mary. Okay? Oh, yeah. Uh, Alec Baldwin is Lou Grant. Right. And Tracy Morgan is Ted Knight. That's it, I mean, but the <laughs> fact is that doesn't take anything away from thirty rock It's original, unique, special, unbelievably well written yep the performances are like I could just wa- i mean I could just watch it over and over yep. again, talk about holy shit moments, but there's a formula there, and so you know when you're doing a stand up special, what are you going to do It's like, look, you know you watch The Underground with David Tell, and I was yep. so happy about him doing that in Comedy Central uh, again. This is a guy who I don't believe has done a comedy special in eight years, maybe. I, yeah, that was he, he hasn't done Miserable a, on HBO. He hasn't done a series yeah. for a long time, but this is what I want to talk about, which is important, besides because yeah. I don't think it's important talking about the things I've done that's outside the box, because that's, I think, boring. This is more important <laughs> for your, your audience. Comedy Central made a decision. We're going to give this guy his own show again, and we're going to give him another hour special. Now, he's probably closer to 50 than he is 40. Mm -hmm. Why are they giving him these things again? The reason why they're giving them to him again is because of the inevitable thing that all comics face that they don't want to address, is the fact that there are maybe, maybe 25, at best if you stretch it, 50 comedians who you could actually say are doing something special and i'd go closer to 25. Mm-hmm. So the reason why they don't give that underground to a young new person or whatever is cuz they're not they don't have the content that somebody like a tell has. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why you'll always keep seeing the Chris Rocks over and over again and yeah. over and over again. And this is what I want to talk about with you guys because this is really important because it's it's almost a sad fact about our business. If you're a singer, okay, just bear with me with this. If you're a singer, you could be the greatest singer in the world in, like, Arcadia, Florida, and you may never be discovered in your life and never get a shot. Mm -hmm. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of brilliant, brilliant singers, musicians, songwriters, uh, bands. They will never see the light of day. Only a select few will. If you're a comedian who's doing material that's a combination of George Carlin and Chris Rock, and you are performing in a restroom in Guam... (laughs) you will fucking make it to the top. (laughs) And people will find you and chase you like your ass is on fire. So every comedian listening, you have all the tools out there that I never had Royce Clayton, a baseball player for 17 years who won a world championship with the Red Sox in 2007 and replaced Ozzy Smith in St. Louis. Which, if you can't see, Barry just pointed to, I think it's the on deck
1: circle <laughs> the that is framed yeah. yeah.
0: right behind his fucking beautiful head. <laughs> uh, that is. <laughs> an, uh, from the World Series. From the World Series, from the 2007. Uh, that was the Red Sox. Uh, Red Sox, Sox, your team. Yeah, you can see the cleat marks there. In That's there. incredible. Do you yeah. know the individual cleat marks of the
2: play? I do yeah. not. <laughs> that uh, would be a crazy fan. Thing. I actually just stepped on that to make it look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so Clayton. But the thing is he said something that I think people joked about and Tracy Morgan has joked about what he but he I said, How did you do it? How did you replace Ozzy Smith? He said, When I was a teenager, I said, I'm gonna replace Ozzy Smith in St. Louis. Wow. He would say it to his mother. And he had this amazing story where he talked about this where he said, you know, he was in, he went to Burbank, I think Burbank or somewhere. He no, he was born in Burbank, but he, he he went to high school somewhere around Los Angeles. And there was one player on the team and a metaphor for for everything we deal with in our business or any business. There was one guy who was better than him. Yep. Always better than him. Right. And he'd finish each game and he'd finish the game and get some shorts on. He'd go up to the guy and say, Hey, you want to go for a jog throughout the mountains? And the guy would say, fuck you, Clayton. I just hit two home runs. I'm not going to jog around the mountains or whatever. Sure. And every game, after every game, after every practice, he'd take another jog, ask the guy. The guy would never go. But he was the best player. They both get picked for the Junior Olympics to represent our country. Royce Clayton hits a walk-off home run to win the game. He rounds the bases. Everybody's celebrating. The guy takes him aside, hugs him, and says, hey, Clayton, I didn't know you had it in you. He's like, yeah, I had it in me. Listen, uh, after this, I'm going to go for a jog. You want to go with me? (laughs) He's like, what the fuck? You just hit the home run to win the game. It doesn't matter. I'm going. One person made the pros of those two and one didn't. And that was Royce Clayton because he worked harder than everybody else. And he said this thing that I'll never forget, which you probably heard before. Study greatness. Imitate greatness. Become great. So all of the people in the comedy business, you have all the greatest comedians out there to see. You can study how they did it, how they construct their jokes, how it goes, how they ring out the thing. And for those of you in comedy, what what it's all about is taking that premise like it's a wet washcloth. And every single joke you get out of it, you just one ring and the water comes out and then you just get another one and you get another one. And just when you think after like 10 versions of that joke, you can't get anything else out. You just get that one more drop out again. And it's all about your content that's going to get you where you want to go. And I, I looked at both of you guys and I, I have a lot of respect for both of you guys. But if there was that famous truth serum in my veins... And I were going to be like an evaluator of the material, the content of the material. And does it stand up to George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Chris Rock, Bill Cosby? And even you guys with the serum in your veins would say, no, it doesn't. But you know what the greats have done, and you know what they the kind of comedy they do. But sometimes what happens is when you get into a certain mode, you play into a certain kind of comedy. Like, just for instance, and I know these are a difficult conversations, but I think. No, this is great. Of, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm like, for instance, with intent, like yeah. your comedy set, Brad, for the underground. I just got right. the link, I saw it. Mm-hmm. And just like you guys know, you fucking destroyed. Oh, well, thank it you, It was sir. unbelievable. The performance was great. The way you uh, presented the comedy was great. The timing was like cast iron timing. You look good. You look good. (laughs) The relationship with the audience was great. Mm -hmm. Everything was great. There was only one thing that could be your downfall. Okay. That the material was uh, could be determined that it was lowest common denominator comedy. Not all of it. Sure. I'd say probably 50% of it. Okay. There were jokes in there that were jokes that were they they involved uh parts of the anatomy and certain yeah, certain things below my waist that uh
1: that uh, you apparently look in the mirror and identify with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um,
2: you know, and there were jokes about, you know, fucking somebody mm-hmm. and you know, as a little person and whatever and, and so these are things that even though they kill and get standing ovations in rooms, you're going to either make it with your lane mm-hmm. or you're not. Now, the difference, I want to get to you in a second. Yep, yep, let's, yeah, we yeah. were
0: hoping on the car ride over.
2: We were both getting okay. bear yeah. cats broken down. So this is the there thing. You go. But the thing about you, Brad, where you have an advantage over other comedians is the fact that because you're a little person, there is no other little person in... A hundred years of comedy that has headlined comedy clubs and theaters. Mm -hmm. You're the only one. Yeah. So therefore, just like when Chris Rock did 10 minutes of Michael Jackson material in his third special. Sure. He gets a get out of jail free card it's Chris Rock you know it's Mm -hmm. like hey it was funny it was amazing it was incredible and yes there's a lot of people who do Michael Jackson jokes but you're Chris Rock yeah you already have three hours of material you get a pass but for Brad Brad, you have to choose what your lane is and your lane you've already chosen it Mm -hmm. the lane you've chosen right now is as a guy who's an entertainer comedian Okay. not a you haven't crushed by any means possible Yes, you haven't chosen the lane of, I'm going to plant my feet, put the microphone in front of me in the stand, and I'm going to tell jokes that if people were blind, that they would laugh at. Mm -hmm. Right now, your whole thing is, the whole physical presentation, I'm a small man, and I'm going to show you that I'm larger than life. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move around the stage like no other person moves around the stage who's six feet tall. I'm going to dance on the stage like no other comedian ever seen. I'm going to do things with an audience member that no one would ever think I could do. Sure. And that's the lane you've chosen, and it's working for you. Mm -hmm. The problem is, as you go on as a comedian, just like Jim Carrey as an actor doing Ace Venturi, as you alluded to, and then doing The Mask and doing Me, Myself, and Irene, When you get around to doing eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, it grosses $12 million even though it's the greatest performance of your life. Mm -hmm. Because people don't want to see you do that anymore. They just want to see you do what they know you to do. Right. So people are coming to see you do that thing, the legend of what you do. Just Mm -hmm. like, and I don't, please don't take this as an insult because you're not this kind of common, (laughs) but just like they went to see Gallagher break the watermelon. Sure they go to see you do the lap dance. Right. Just like when they go to see Craig Shoemaker, they go to see the Love, love master. master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do, okay. you think,
0: do you think, too, that there's, I mean, like, uh, for where he's at in his career right now, though, that, that this is, uh, like, I think the comic that you're alluding to of him, like, really t- talking about things with the material being uh, something that blind people could laugh at, that, that there's potential for him to get to that. In, like, ten years, he could be at a different point in his life where that's... More appealing to him, or that's where right now this could be, because um, obviously the, the the growth and progression of comics. That's why we keep doing it to see like where we'll be in yeah, you know, five or ten years. What Louis, are do next. you see an old tape of Louis, like it's, it's a totally different years comic. In, uh, I
2: mean, just you can
0: should, you make an active decision to be like I'm going to be this guy, or do you have to let it happen organically?
2: Watch Louis Saturday Night Live opening.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's incredible.
2: And watch the Saturday Night Live opening. Wonderful opening, incredible. But another thing you want to look at, because there's three sides to every story, look at how Louis might feel about other comedians who were performing back then and the things that they were doing that he felt were not the right things to do, like laughing at your own jokes mm-hmm. or telling dick jokes. And so when you look at certain things, what you realize is is that you're a comic when you're going and you're, you're working so hard like Louis worked, and again, I the things I feel for Louie in my heart are just, I have such strong, wonderful feelings for him because, you know, he, I, you know, I'll tell you a personal story, a really personal short story. When I, uh, a lot of people know this who listen to my podcast, but when I was um, 26, I was married and my wife passed away. She was 23. And my first Christmas, I was, you know, I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't sure. And that Christmas Eve it might have been christmas i think it was christmas i'm sorry it was christmas i had one of those answering machines and back then you had the answering machines that just you could hear what people you know people would call would go to the answer machine you could yeah. hear the voice of the person right as 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 they're recording it and he called yeah. me like every hour wow barry get out of fucking bed you're coming over my house i'm inviting you over my house you're coming over Calling and calling and calling to finally I picked up around like four o'clock in the afternoon. I said, What's up, Louis? And he said, Barry, you're coming here. You're coming to our house. And it was snowing out and it was crazy. And, And I said, Louis, I just don't feel good. You're coming. If I have to go over there and get you, you're coming. I said, Okay, I'll come over. And I went over there, and this whole family had presents for me. They had a seat at the table for me. I didn't know anybody. Wow. And I'll never forget that. And, you know, he was always uh, wonderful to me. And and, uh, and uh, his success, it just it's its so incredible to see. But also, if you listen to some of his interviews, when people are on their way up and they're working so hard like hes he was working, and then you see other people doing better than you, mm-hmm. no matter how great you are, it's tough to take. Just to use the Ozzy Smith example in sports, for those of you who don't know the history and lineage of it, Ozzie Smith was an ambassador to baseball. He was like the golden child. He never, ever said a bad word about anything. Never, ever rocked the boat classy in every way. Royce Clayton came to St. Louis during his last year when he was supposed to ride off in the sunset. He wasn't ready to ride off in the sunset. And he made Royce Clayton's life miserable to where Royce Clayton was the enemy. And he built himself up and did whatever he could to, and it was a bad scene because even after all those years in baseball, he still, it got to him and he didn't. And and comedians are the same way. It doesn't matter.
0: As great as you become. As great as
2: you become, there's always going to be something that's going to disappoint you or upset you and you might say something that might be damaging or hurtful to people. And so what I was alluding to before tying it all together, we were talking about comedians and if they, how they feel or get upset. Getting lonely, yeah. I was in Toronto. It was Dan's first date ever on a tour. Okay? 21,500 people sold out. Holy Toronto. crap. Toronto. Air Canada Center? Air Canada Center. Yeah. I can't first, even imagine doing. It was the first show ever. He says, I want to meet you. Can I meet you, um... Down in the dressing room, 4 o'clock, I said, sure. I get to the dressing room, and his head is in his hands. You know, he's just like, I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, I just, I don't know, I just don't want to do this show. I'm not feeling it. Now, keep in mind that a lot of times that what happens in the comedian's life is the greatest times of your life is are when you experience some of the most difficult things that ever happened. You know, for him, he lost his mom, right. he lost his dad, and his brother was in the process of fucking him over. So yeah. there were a lot of variables, and the comedians were turning against him. This was it, this show. And this was his first show ever in an arena. And Jesus I, I just told him, I said, look, you know, this is a defining moment for you. It's a defining moment in your career. You're here to prove that your comedy works all over the world. And this is your first date, and you're going to go out there, and you're going to kill him, And you're going to feel good afterwards. And... Uh, And he did an amazing show and it was, you know, those are the kind of things that, you know, when I look at my, uh, my life, there, there are certain moments that we all point to that are, that are fascinating. Like when I went to Boston Garden, you know, when, when we did the pitch for Chris Albrecht at HBO for the HBO special and the tourgasm series, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the pitch was just let's do it in an arena. He never worked in a a place that was more than 500 seats in Boston,
1: ever. And now he wants to do the Garden.
2: And now he wanted to do the Garden. And how do you
1: pitch that without
0: uh,
2: when you have no prior uh, experience of doing? It shows the magnitude because both of you guys are great salespeople because you're selling your comedy. And on my side. I like to sell the artist and and the belief that we're going to do something different that's never been done before. And uh, Chris Albrecht, to his credit, he he hadn't bought anything from me in 10 years because he was mad at me because of something that happened with Dave Chappelle. (laughs) And... um, he'll tell that story on the podcast if you listen to it but he he was really not not doing anything when that couldn't get him to buy anything but
0: as a manager you can't say all right well
2: he, yep. 10 years went by no i, I kept I, I would always keep going in and yeah. trying but you know and he sure. would never say that it was because of anything and so what's fascinating about the Boston Garden show the HBO special which was actually the first arena ever i'm sorry toronto wasn't he had this thing on MySpace where he had like 2.5 million friends or fans yeah. or however you yeah, describe he it. He revolutionized comedy that way, Dane did. And that concert, the first show on sale, we didn't know there was going to be a second show. We, we had a goal for a second show. And he put it on a pre-sale where there was nobody allowed to get any tickets there was no ad in any newspaper there was no facebook there was nothing there was no radio nothing he had his computer we set up the link on ticketmaster for a pre-sale and he made a little bulletin and he pressed a button on his computer and as i looked to the heavens in two and a half days 19,000 seats were sold out, and we rolled it over to another pre-sale for the second show, mm-hmm. which sold out in less than a week, and he'd sold thirty-nine or 38,000 tickets for one night with the press of a button. Not one person from the general public who wanted to buy just who didn't have his code or wasn't on MySpace got to go to that show. That's incredible, and wow, that's when you're sitting in that arena and walking around that arena in Boston Garden, where you watch the Celtics you know win championships and and you realize three or five miles down the road, you were in Kenmore Square watching Stephen Wright. Or you are in your comedy club at Play It Again Sam's in a smoky basement doing the reverb for some comedian <laughs> doing a parody of John Cougar Melanchat. <laughs> it lets you know how far you can come and how far you can go. And 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 that's the thing. Like when I talk about comedy and I talk about comedians, if you can figure out how to do the right kind of comedy, you can I don't think you can fail unless you're an alcoholic or you're a drug addict or you're a asshole or you're a drama mm-hmm. queen or king. I don't think you can fail. I, don't, I really don't. And you can succeed not doing the right kind of comedy, too. And I don't want to go into the examples of sure. that, but there's a lot of people who got gigs on television or those things. They booked their first acting job and then they started doing comedy or... There's a lot of guys who've been done different television shows. They're out doing comedy tours now. There's people who do radio or doing comedy now. And when you go to see them, within five minutes you know that the material isn't the right. I want to talk about somebody, like somebody who I'm not even really that close with. For some reason, I don't know why, but when I go to see Jim Jeffries, Mm -hmm. okay, I feel like, my stomach feels like I fell when I watched Basic Instinct. Okay? <laughs> I am uncomfortable. I am, like, really, really... If I have a girl with me, mm-hmm. I, like, I don't even know what to say. But I will tell you this. I know I'm watching greatness. Yeah, yeah. I know I'm watching something that reminds me of what I used to see when Bill Hicks was working my club in the village. I know I'm watching somebody do something that's that's I don't think anybody does. Now I'm not saying that I you know I I feel great inside after I watch it. <laughs> the thing I feel great about is the fact that I see somebody doing something that's extraordinary that you can't you can't watch that and as a relevant comedian and say yeah, that guy's a hack. Right? No, it's yeah. impossible. The material is. I saw him, and I, on the night when I saw you destroy the place, by the way, uh, that was an incredible set you had that night. Was it the Hollywood Improv that yes. night with uh, me, Jim, and Jay Moore? Yes. Cool. Thank what you. Show. That show would probably cost you like two hundred dollars. <laughs> I saw the guy do a bit on. I can't pronounce the name on the guy that with no legs. Oh, you Oscar Pestroyus. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the bit. Yeah. The guy. I mean, the guy's acting out. Like uh, it's a like murder. a twelve minute bit. He's acting out of murder <laughs> and crawling across the floor and dragging himself. It, it just the guy is acting out of murder in his comedy routine. Now, I'm not suggesting this for the comedians that are listening. I'm sure. just mm-hmm. saying that he's that good. Mm-hmm. He's chosen to 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 take a lane that is risky. That is unique. That is certainly not for everybody. I, I, I'm I'm telling you right now. I can't. I mean, it it it. The some of the stuff like he's talking about, like when you're, I can't even say this, but. When you're standing up and your girl is on her knees and you're grabbing her hair and you're sure. just about to do that thing <laughs> yeah. that guys do, you're describing
0: yeah. my the night of my bar mitzvah party, yeah. Yeah, it was just.
2: And then he then he says, you know what the guy's really saying when he's grabbing your hair and he's just about to do that? He's like saying like, "I hate you, you fucking." And he says yeah. the c word. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're sitting there with a woman who you hope to have that happen to you <laughs> later right. at night. And she looks at you. Do you feel that way when you do that? So it's like. Right. But the fact is, even though I know I'm never going to see that girl again that yeah. I'm with. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm so respectful of Jim. when I see um, When I see Dave Chappelle do the routine about the crack baby in Compton walking down the street and selling drugs or whatever. Hey, baby! (laughs) Yeah, even though, even though, you see, when Jim Jeffries is doing that routine, he's acting out the murder. Right. What's crazy about what he's acting out is you can actually feel like this could actually have happened. Sure. Sure. When Chappelle is describing the three- or four-year-old with the diaper, you know there's a one-in-a-thousand chance that this could actually happen, but you actually feel it. Yeah. like it could happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he takes reality, he just twists it slightly, and he brings you something that you you can't get anywhere else. That's
0: a storytelling ability that's just you can't uh, teach, because yeah. he, there's something about him when he talks and in his face and his voice that you want to believe what he's saying, and then you end up do uh, do uh, believing it after you listen to it for a few minutes.
2: Yeah, and so when I was talking about your your act, Brad, mm-hmm. you're in a situation where, whether you like to admit it or not, when you make it big, and you're going to make it huge, and I'm never wrong about that. I've never been wrong about that stuff. I love that. You're going to be a huge, huge act, mm-hmm. but you have to understand that the mainstream comedians, no matter how nice you are, are all going to be shitting on you. Because right. you're doing an act that's bigger than life, and they see it as a show. Mm-hmm. They see it as a show. You can just see, and I'm not saying he says this, but I'm just thinking of myself. <laughs> you can just see, insert comedian here as you're doing your act at the April Foolishness of on Oh, great. Fantastic. Right. I, I got to follow the dancing fucking midget. Sure. <laughs> well, I
0: think you know, Bill Burr said it during the uh, K-Rock April Foolishness. Yeah. Uh, I think he was trying to work out a Hitler bit, and people <laughs> were half on board with it. And he goes, really? I mean, fuck it. You can watch a dancing midget. I keep talking to Hitler for two minutes.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> right. So there you go. So and it's like uh, Bill Burr is another example of a guy. Uh, Bill, and again, I wish you were sitting here. hmm to show you how crazy our world is now where uh, Bill, what's happening with Bill now would never have happened 20 years ago. You're talking about a guy, just so your audience knows, this is what's so amazing about Bill. Another guy I have incredible respect for. Yeah, one of the best working today the day, for sure. He started off, he booked his first acting job. He ever went out for called Townies with Molly Ringwald. There was a Carsey Werner show. Holy crap. Um, okay. First job he ever went out for. Then he didn't book another acting job for over a decade. Okay. <laughs> was working the clubs. Never was really drawing crowds. Nothing. Even when he was gaining a following, still not selling out every show at comedy clubs. Goes on an Opie and Anthony show. Traveling virus tour. I remember this. Uh, Every comic's getting their ass handed to him, getting booed off the stage. He's Mm -hmm. getting his ass handed to him. But miraculously, some person with a cell phone that records or a camera just records him getting the shit kicked out of him but he starts coming back and fighting back and saying you know stuff like you guys are booing me yeah how is- do you fucking bow down to some fucking statue of an inanimate object that yeah, isn't it's a, a real Philadelphia. Person?
1: And, he, and he's like really uh, you're 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 Biggest hero is your biggest hero, Rocky, is completely fictional.
2: Yeah, yeah. Nice job. And then asshole. he starts killing. In the last mm-hmm. five minutes, he's crushing. And this is recorded on the shitty audio, audio and video recording. Go on YouTube and look. It, it goes up. on right. YouTube. And I know if Bill were here, he knows that he's where he is right now because of extraordinary hard work. Mm-hmm. But he's also where he is right now because one random fan with a camera recorded his brilliance, and the whole world could see it. George Carlin used to say this thing. He used to say, I'm doing it all wrong. I'm going from venue to venue, spreading my word to like 1,500 people in every city, each city I go to. Then I wrote my first book. A million people read it. And that's what happened with Bill. It's like we all knew how brilliant Bill was, mm-hmm. but the world didn't know until this random Something person like that, yeah. took this thing yeah. and put it up. Now, right.
0: why was it that clip and not like just a great clip of him just killing?
1: He, yeah, somewhere. yeah, because he had done uh, he had done a Showtime special. He had done, I think, uh, Sh- uh, Shaq's, uh comedy All Star, like one of those sort of yeah. comedy shows. But I'm curious I, but, how, but I
2: think, in my opinion, mm-hmm. the reason being with anything is like. America loves the underdog. Yeah. Everybody loves the underdog. That's why, Brad, in your world, you can't, you're embalmable. When's the last time I'm you. I'm a snowman? When's the last. <laughs> here's i I'll, I'll give you an example. I should write this down in an envelope. I already know the answer. Mm-hmm. When's the last time you ate it? Like, I mean, I mean, ate it. You, the, the, you bombed. Uh, me how long ago?
1: It was the, the, the Super Bowl. Uh, when the Colts were playing the Saints, I was in Philadelphia at Helium, uh, and it was a huge snowstorm. 20 people came out to my show, and they were miserable, and I was miserable because there was only 20 people in the audience, and I ate shit that night.
2: Now, and you, how how long ago was that? That was,
1: let's see, that Super Bowl is four years ago? Three, four years ago?
0: You ate shit like you didn't get laughs? No. You did, you, you, and, it, and it took you out of it? You didn't give your best?
1: Yeah. It was uh And I, how many it, shows
2: yeah. have you done since then?
1: Uh approximately. Geez. Just tell tell the audience. Well, yeah, fifty two weeks, forty five seven. Uh over over fifteen hundred shows. Okay. Over two thousand shows. All right.
2: So Brad Williams in his comedy is mm-hmm. this is uh again using the brain surgeon esque uh example here. You have failed one time yeah. in fifteen hundred shows. hmm Okay? Mm-hmm. That's insanity. That's like, that's how every comedian hopes. I always tell to any comedian, listen, if you want, they always say, how do I get to the next level? How do I get to the next level? I always say, whatever your home club is, if you kill 10 times in a row where every audience member says you were the best, Mm -hmm. the bar back, the waitresses, the bartender, the manager... The comedians who hate you. Yeah. <laughs> if you do it ten times in a row, get a helmet because you're going to another level if you can do that. Mm-hmm. There's no stopping you if you can do that because if you can beat those odds in your home club, you can do it at the away team. And yeah, Delia club. just hit that. I'd say right about probably about a two years ago maybe. Probably. Yeah, and I Wait. think I think Chris is you know he's a he's an interesting case Chris because he was. Um, for those of you who don't know, he grew up in the business. His father is a director, mm-hmm. and he was around show business a lot. And Chris is an interesting case because, you know, everybody has their own winning formula. And he has a very unique winning formula, not just in his comedy, but in how he dresses every day at the comedy club. He's just like mm-hmm. a T-shirt, and old jean guy, and it's almost like he's... He's been transported from another time and era here. <laughs> but I think as comedy, you know, when you do it over and over again, and you work hard enough and you repeat something over and over again, you're going to become at a point where it's like you're at another level. And I think Chris is getting to another level. And I think also, though, but he would agree, is he at Carlin's level is ten minutes of his at Carlin's level or Rock's level or you know or Chappelle's level and even he if he were sitting here would say, No it's not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal. The goal is to figure out a way to do something on stage where people talk about you, what I love about this podcast right now, and this is another thing you learn about comedy, if you want to get someplace in comedy, like I'll always ask a comedian, tell me three comedians who are working around here that aren't really household names mm-hmm. that, that, that you like. And they'll mention three names and then I'll just stand there and they'll say, well, um, do you have any advice for me? And I'll <laughs> say, yeah, become one of those fucking three names that people are talking about become gerard carmichael right become the young kid who comes to town and is nice to everybody and goes on stage and does material that isn't derivative Mm -hmm. and is unique and special and somebody who can actually go into an audition and act and book an acting job you know that's what it's all about I'd love to hear uh,
0: Brad's kind of just take on what you uh, told him about like um, being in a place now where it is a very comic slash entertainer and how uh, or if he should stay in that lane or if you think like you you enjoy – like if you for yourself want to be – in like ten years from now, having like less of entertaining and more leaning on that mic stand and talking about right some well, and and it's funny because I've had this
1: conversation with and not Barry so before.
0: concerned with like the big laughs, which I know yeah. is I mean I think we all are you and I both at this point like that is you want to put on the best show possible sure and and since we are trying to still climb to a point to where we have um, you know maybe the, the respect from not only our, our fans but our peers but at the same mm-hmm. time maybe we're losing something by. Being so concerned with the quality, yeah, of yeah.
1: Well, and uh, and I wanted to test this. Uh, Barry had told me this. Uh, Barry, you told me this in in in, in this office before. Like this, uh, you talked about your Mount Rushmore comedy, and would George Carlin do a lap dance in in his act? Would Chris Rock do a lap dance? And I thought about it, and I needed to know was I a good comedian or was I just an okay comedian and then when when I do that lap dance in the end that's when I get everyone to stand up and applaud so I I took it out I I I've been, been doing the lap dance for the last 3 months on the road and the fact that uh I remember it was the, it was the first weekend I I I did it. it was in uh at the Arlington Draft House which Adam you and I have both played great club and they had come there and some guy even yelled out 5 minutes into my set we're going to see the lap dance. Yeah. And, and I knew, nope, not tonight. Not going to do it. And I and I did my act. I did an hour. I said, thank you. Put the mic back in the stand. standing ovation. And, and, and people still came up to me afterward and said, dude, we've seen a bunch of comics here. This, this, this is the best show we've seen. I thought, okay, I think I've got something here.
2: How'd that make you feel?
1: Better than any standing ovation I've ever gotten with the lap dance.
2: And you know what's incredible about what Brad said? if you're a comic you know, every comic out there has a routine normally that they feel is their closer mm-hmm. maybe unless you're kirk fox and you have you know <laughs> you just have all different bits yeah. that you feel like you could close in everywhere and you're you're going in a different style and direction which is <laughs> incredible but but every comic has a bit that they feel hey this is the thing i'm going to close yeah. on you know this is when kevin Meany was touring it was we are the world He used yep. to do all the you know uh, uh, Pablo Francisco
1: for so long had the little tortilla boy. Yeah, bit. that was that was the closer. Right,
2: and so and so for Brad, that closing bit and the lap dance. That's like, that's like his life is blood. That's like mm-hmm. his first born child. Yeah, it is. So for him to go on and take that safety net out of his act, that's one of the riskiest things the comedian could ever do. It's sure. like a, almost like a guitar comic. Uh, who has this big closure with the guitar? Says, you know, I'm not going to do the guitar. This, this, yeah. this particular thing. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and so, Nick
1: Thune's been doing that recently and having great sets. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's been so fun to watch Nick put down the guitar and still going on stage and like, yeah, you're you're just a talented guy, Nick. You don't necessarily yeah. need the guitar. It certainly is a fun thing that you do, but you don't need it. You're great and i what is it what is the balance though between like uh, cuz i feel like
0: taking out a big like whether you know there's some comics that end their uh, acts on whether it's a lap dance or musical cues and they'll do a big like miming a big driving to thing and and pretending you know that there's different songs in a medley of uh, a compilation of songs that they're doing different act outs each to each you know track um and then people that just close on strong bits like before i started headlining i thought i was gonna have to you know i do music i even do like i have this background with puppetry and stuff and i was like maybe i'll do some of that in my because I, mm-hmm. I thought before i did it i was like oh i need to have some sort of big this is a show i need to have some sort of also the performer in me was like i need to close on something memorable <clears throat> and then i hosted for greg gerald who was one, you know one of my favorites rest in peace at the irvine improv and i saw him every night close on a different closer. And I was wow. just like, holy shit. And I, up until that point, the material had been so great and his crowd work. And it was just like he ended on that and said goodnight. And I was, you know, I'd seen other people do that, but uh, for whatever reason, like the way maybe him switching up the closer, but just ending on a strong piece of material and then leaving people walking out going, you, you know, remembering um a lot of people just walk out sometimes with that last thing that happens being what they take the whole show from so maybe in a way that lap dance was like erasing a lot of great material you, yeah. you know you could have had but i walked out being like god that was incredible and i remembered more of his material because of that last bit um so i mean i guess what at what point do you need to i mean it's brad said he's made an active choice to cut the And i
2: I think it's really uh incredible what he did now. i don't I know what's going to, I mean, what's going to happen in your career, it it doesn't matter whatever it is, you're going to have people that are always going to try to take you down, Brad. That's the way it's going to be. Yeah. So I didn't say that to you to stop you from being a great entertainer Mm -hmm. because the thing is, is that I know as you grow, you're going to have, like when Dane toured, The amazing thing about him was a third of his act was really smart. The atheist bit was was an incredible bit, bit, like a 12-minute bit, incredible. And then there was a third that was just silly stuff, you know. uh, Have you ever gotten so drunk that you, uh, you know, got in the cab and you thought the fare was the time? Mm -hmm. And then there was other bits that were just so blue, like he did a 30-minute bit about, you know. Cash you off the piece. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, uh, so... And that's was his choice of how he did it, and you, you're because you are a little person, mm-hmm. you have a different choice than most comics have because you're the only one, right? So you can do anything you want that makes you happy and soar, because you know, and, and it doesn't matter if you're doing the greatest material in the world or not or whatever. There's always going to be people that have an opinion, but you're the people love you. And that's all that, that matters. And for now, as long as they keep coming, the whole thing is about following. And I know people talk about this all the time, but it's like if you're a comic, you know, back then, you know, in, in the beginning, your goal was to, you know, to get The Tonight Show or do something like that. Now your goal is to have people follow you, not just follow you on Twitter, but follow you on Facebook when you're in the comedy clubs, follow you to the comedy club. From the comedy club, follow you to the theaters. From right. the theaters, follow you to, to a TV the TV show, shows. The podcast, from the TV to shows to the podcast. From the podcast to the movies. It's all about your audience bringing your audience where and having the comfort that they want to go wherever you want to go. And I think we should talk about your act for a second. Yeah, let's do it. Let me just tell you, too, at at a taping of
0: uh, Whitney, uh, the TV show with Whitney and Chris, you told me, um, uh, again, you said uh, that I'm going to be a star, that you're never wrong. You said uh, you've got the looks, the charm, the, uh, the, the chops, and then you said stay away from Thing, pussy and booze and drugs <clears throat> and i said i can try uh,
2: two out of three in bed uh,
0: yeah yeah um
2: and uh, have and you it, ever been with a little person what's that <laughs> have you ever slept with a little person
0: no but i've seen brad almost naked and i think like that's like close
2: enough <laughs> okay. like, yeah yeah um through great, great thru, ass
1: through osmosis Yes, <laughs> yeah
2: um and, but when uh, I, you you forgot something i did tell you though that i i why i believe that you're going to be do really really well because you have the ability to book significant acting jobs. Well, did which you, we saw from uh, did, uh, the two hundred million dollar did for, movie that you
0: forget that? Uh, yeah, I mean, but you, I, what I remember, you you said though, because you'd asked me, this was I before I got in the heat, and you said uh, about being undeniable, because I'd been through a t- two solid pilot seasons of getting, not testing, but getting a lot of callbacks, and then just not going <clears throat> further, and it happened again this pilot season. And, um, and to, to the for the first point to where my you know manager and agent were starting to think if there were other things that I could be doing and they're maybe thinking I was over preparing like trying to you know trying to come up with a reason why it didn't happen um, why I didn't book a show this season and um, you know I would comfort them by telling them uh, I'm great in the room I don't over prepare when I coach with anybody uh, a lot of it is for the uh, I'm already coming in with my own. Um, uh, preparations, and a lot of it is is getting to have some, uh, uh, doing it out loud with somebody else, and then people that know me and know my strengths and weaknesses to able to throw things at me that I can uh, take to make adjustments or not make adjustments. But then I'm, I've gotten to a point where I really do well at throwing all that away when I get in the room and just try to be as present as possible and... and uh, But you know, you get to the point where you're starting to break it down. Like, are you trying to, are you being too funny at the beginning? Are you trying to be, get them to like you too much at the beginning? Like, there's all those things you try to, you dissect when it's not, when you're not having a booking. And after the heat, you know, there was a part of me that was like, all right, at least I'm going to get into more rooms and whatever. I know this isn't going to mean I'm going to start booking every show and people are, Sandler's not going to throw me in every movie now. It doesn't work like that. But um, did you get in more rooms? Yeah and i mean for stand up i started headlining every weekend for the last year and but for the uh, and a lot of generals and a lot of things and but there was no immediate this you know this last policy season came and went and there was no uh nothing i uh you know got attached to and um for me i know how this business works and i know that like it well, i was laying the ground level
2: well, let's break that down yeah
0: but you, I remember you saying that at the Whitney taping, like, why aren't you at one point? Because I expressed my frustrations, and you said, "Why aren't you being undeniable?"
2: I said, "Why aren't you being undeniable?" But I did say, I, again, I'll reiterate yeah, that yeah. you do, you did have the skill set to book significant acting yeah, jobs, and I you. felt that from you. Thank you. But let's. Go back. You want to go yeah. to my act or my acting? Uh, <laughs> let's, let's, yeah. let's just talk about the acting here for a second. By the way,
0: this couch is very conducive for therapeutic purposes. Like, yeah, no it's, kidding. It's, right? it's very. We're both set up. I haven't got. Hey, couch. we this. should talk about how my dad cheated on my mom first before getting all this. <laughs> no. We're gonna
2: get to that in a second. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> this is this couch is like the. It's very large. <laughs> That's great. Um, this is uh, an interesting thing I'm going to ask you. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So you said four years. Okay. Yeah. In four years. Um, Tell me approximately how many auditions you've had in four years. Oh Jesus! Great. If you had to guess,
0: I mean, I thought about this uh, about a week ago, and just, I just yeah, and it was the, overwhelming.
2: Just tell me the number.
0: Jesus, I mean, get over a hundred.
2: Oh, of course. Yeah. Be,
0: a, I mean, look at I'd him. say close Pat. to f- four I mean, f- I don't want to say five hundred
2: seems too many. So, but I'd say up to, like, over 300, probably. Right. Let's just say, right. Let's just say 400. Okay. 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 Now, Brad's saying himself, 400, I get an audition once every 400 days. <laughs> That's because there's seven roles right. available for you a year. Exactly. <laughs> so you're going out for and, it. It's like, and, right. and six of them go to Dinklage. <laughs>
0: that asshole. And the other one is because you can't throw a gold coin uh, at a leprechaun's ass properly. It so
2: 400 auditions. Yeah. Why don't you tell your audience how many auditions you booked out of those 400? Uh Uh-huh. Six? Six. Six out of 400. Okay, so you're the antithesis as an actor, as Brad is as a comedian. Yeah. And that's the the thing about comedians and certain skill sets in the world. You think... That because you're on stage and you're writing, producing, acting, directing, and starring in your own show every night to a different audience and killing, mm-hmm. uh, killing 1,499 times out of 1,500, <laughs> right. then naturally I can go into a room with an intern with a camera holding it and saying, hey, could you slate, please? Yeah. And then the person reading the sides to you like a functionally autistic person would read the sides. <laughs> And you'd think, hey, I can beat this, I can do yeah, a heckler, I can sure. do whatever, but it's a different muscle, it's, it's, very a- oh, totally. sim- it's very similar to roasting. People think, oh, I'm watching this guy roasting, this must be easy. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why Jeff Ross has done 17 roasts and they don't mix it up a little bit, right. it's because there's not a lot of people who can do it and do it well. He's it's just a very it. tough, yeah. tough situation. And it's the same with stand-up comedians, why there's so few of them that you can point to that are extraordinary. It's very hard to do. So for you in acting, you have to analyze this. So we're going to look at this for a second. I want you to tell your audience honestly. Yeah. Why have you gone, I'm going to be really cruel here for a second, because I'll do what you would do in a roasting sense. Okay. Okay. Why in the last three pilot seasons have you booked as many jobs as a dead guy? A fucking cadaver could walk into every audition and book as many jobs as you booked. Why? Wow. Um... If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel
0: called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass,
2: Liza Sleisinger. Sleisinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years. One of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and
0: much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to YouTube.com slash WaitForItComedy.
1: There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here, and it's funny.